I want to start with a, an adaptation of an old English prayer that used to be used in the baptismal rite uh, <clears throat> in the Church of England. And it goes like this. Almighty God, receive us into the congregation of Christ's flock and do sign us with the sign of the cross in token that hereafter we shall not be ashamed to confess the faith of Christ crucified and manfully to fight under his banner against sin, the world, and the devil and to continue Christ's faithful soldiers and servants unto our lives' ends. Uh, I'm going to come back to that in a, in a few minutes. In the, in the ensuing weeks, in in anticipation of Lent and through the Sundays of Lent, I want to talk about our roles as priests of creation. So really, we're, we're carrying this creation theme a little bit further. And, and the reason is, is that really, this is the essence of Orthodox perception of reality. So this is going to come up everywhere. Uh, I, I just finished reading St. Sophroni's latest book, they're publishing his works after his, he's left this life, uh, and, and they get better as they go along. So how does that happen, I guess, because the saint is praying that it will be. But and then also started reading one of the re most recent books by Father Zacharias. Uh, and if you haven't heard this, you know, I, I, I have been so influenced by those two writers that my whole perception of the reality of orthodoxy has been transformed. Uh, in any case... Uh, I, I hear the language of creation and what we've talked about in past lessons uh, woven throughout everything they say. And, and I would have to say that without, without perceiving the context of what God intended in creation and what he's brought about through recreation and how that affects our perception, I, I really I have a hard time imagining ever understanding orthodoxy without it. I mean, everything begins to change uh, when one has that perspective. Uh, and so even understanding our place in the church needs to be understood not just as priests or the priests uh, or the priesthood of the believers, but a priests of creation, that our place finds its meaning uh, in the whole context of creation and what God intended from the beginning. So that's what I'm going to be doing in, in, the, in the following weeks, and I'll give you a breakdown on some of it in just a minute. But in past lessons, we saw that, that the proper view of reality and of creation, even of humanity, meaning understanding ourselves, uh, is seen in the context of what God intended in the beginning. Uh, we have to look at what he intended in the beginning in order to understand, number one, what he expects of us, and number two, how far from that we've fallen uh, so that we recognize in doing that, uh, that in redemption, God restores us to the, to the original context. He restores us to the ability to be able to do what he intended in the beginning. And in that, and in the doing of that, we become once again the crown of creation. Humanity is the crown of creation. The world around us will tell us we're just one of, humanity is just one aspect of the created order along with animals and everything else. In fact, we may be the less of the bunch. No, we are the crown of creation. That's a pretty big order for us. And so in recognizing this in redemption, we also know that there are, there are expectations which come with this assignment. We're not the crown of creation just because God redeemed us and he likes us, you know, and that kind of thing. And we just sit back and cruise on that knowledge. There is an assignment to this. Uh, and, and the assignment, the, expect, the fulfillment of those expectations 
our fulfillment of our role in paradise. And that's one of the things that we begin to experience paradise now, not down the road when we leave this life or when God completes all of creation. We start now. We walk into that building and we start now. The church is the collection of those who understand this and also understand a lot of people don't understand this and they're in the church too. But the thing is, we don't want to stay there. We want to be drawn into this mystery because it's being drawn into paradise, into a real relationship and an experience and encounter with God who is all in all. And so we want to be a part, there are the churches, and we want to be a part of this, the collection of those who choose to return to the experience of paradise. Uh, and there's much to be done in this regard for us and much to be understood. In the ensuing weeks, I want to touch on, and it will take me a couple of weeks to get there, but I want to talk about the life and words of St. John of Kronstadt. St. John is the Orthodox patron saint of parish priests. Uh, and you might think, well, what does that got to do with me? Well, he has a lot to tell parish priests about their ministries and what they should be like for their parishes. And that can be translated to lay people. And that's what I want to do, is translate some aspects. So we will look at today the three priesthoods. We think of priesthood as being twofold. The priesthood of Christ, the priesthood of believers. That's an American concept. In orthodoxy, we tend to look at it twofold, the priesthood of Christ, the priesthood of the clergy, and not of the people. Both of those latter two, the, the, the dual understandings, are incomplete. So we want to look at the three priesthoods, and that we will do today, just briefly. Next week, I want to look at the ancient Jewish priesthood, because it enlightens us. Uh, we're not something, the church is not something new. Christianity is not something new. Uh, we are a continuation of the ancient tradition. We are Judaism. That is very orthodox. We are Judaism. And, and that's another history lesson. I won't go into that. Just let that one nurture and, and watch when you read and see what you discover. So we'll look at the ancient Jewish priesthood the next time. The third lesson, we'll look at the life and priesthood of St. John of Kronstadt and his example to us. And then the last four lessons, we'll look at four things, four categories that he addressed. Uh, one will be the priest person, and that really affects all of us. And then the priest and prayer. If we expect to be the priesthood of believers, then we have to understand that there's a priestly function that is there for all of us to follow. And prayer is a part of that. And then we'll look at the priest and the divine services, the mass especially, but the other services as well. And lastly, the priest and temptation, because the devil does not want us to find out what I'm about to tell you. He doesn't want us to know it, and he doesn't want us to practice it. So the minute we get serious about this and decide we're going to do it, we're going to have resistance, lots of it anything to keep us from being what God wants us to be. And in those four last four lessons, I'm going to use quotes from St. John's book. He wrote one book, which is basically a journal. Uh, it, it's sort of like a journal. It's not in, written in the style that we would think of being a journal, but basically it was he, whenever he had a few moments, he would sit down and write down his thoughts on what he had experienced in his ministry. It's called My Life in Christ. 
so I'm going to use some of those as springboards, if you will, to illuminate what's expected of us. So, so right now, I just want to look at three levels of priesthood. St. Peter, in his first epistle, said to us, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. And then, of course, he added, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Now, that's where we get the notion of the priesthood of believers that, that, that many American non-Orthodox Christians uh, advocate so strongly. We all know about the priesthood of the Old Testament. If we haven't studied it, and we will, as I mentioned, we'll look at it the next time. But if we haven't studied it, we've least been exposed to it because of our, our readings of the Gospels, because Christ dealt with the priests and with the Pharisees. Uh, so we've got an experience of it. And if we've been doing our Bible readings, and we also find out some things about the priesthood of Christ, as particularly as it's outlined in the epistle to the Hebrews. If you want to understand the priesthood of Christ, read Hebrews. Uh, also, something about the priesthood of, of clergy, too. Uh, so he sa it says in Hebrews 4, We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Christ is the great high priest. And as I mentioned, again, we tend to discredit priests in American Christianity. People say, by the way, where did you get this notion of priests? Well, you have to appeal to the apostolic tradition, which a lot of Protestants don't like. Anything has to do with tradition. Uh, but you have to understand that the Bible was, the, the New Testament that we have was 20 years in the making uh, after the resurrection. So it was 20 years probably before any of those materials was written down. That means the tradition of the story of Christ was passed down by word of mouth for at least 20 years. 20 years, what do you call that? Well, St. Paul called it the tradition, the apostolic tradition. Uh, so tradition came before what we understand as the New Testament. Uh, and the canon of the Old Testament was not closed by Judaism until 90 AD. So part of the Old Testament was up for question at the time that the New Testament books began to be written. So that too is a part of the tradition. By the way, the shorter Old Testament was closed by Judaism in reaction to Christianity because the Christians use the longer Old Testament that we Orthodox use. So the Old Testament of the church is the longer Old Testament. And the, the shorter Old Testament that is so popular in North America today is a, is a canon advocated by a group outside Christianity who weren't even Christian, who closed it in reaction to Christianity. Now, if that doesn't make you say, I'm reading the full Bible, I don't know what will. Uh, that gets my Irish up. I'm telling you. <laughs> and I studied Judaism and loved it. So, uh, in any case, we have a threefold priesthood in the church Christ, the priesthood of Christ, the priesthood of the clergy, and the priesthood of the people. We're all priests. And, we, and responsibilities that go with that are laid on all of us. We don't get to cruise here, we don't, nobody gets to cruise. We all have a responsibility. And when you hear about these greater responsibilities, like the high priest and the priest of the Old Testament, I want you to translate it to what does this say to me? What does this tell me about my own work and the and expectations of me? We talked in the, the lessons on, on man in the beginning, and when we're talking about the creation story. 
about the quality of universality. We, we, need, we need to understand that that really defines us as people, as human beings. And remember, make no mistake, I'm not saying universalism. Understand the difference between universalism and universality. Universalism is an errant non-Christian viewpoint that everybody goes to heaven, there is no hell, all religions are the same. Christ did not say that. So we have a real issue as Christians if we believe in universalism. Real issue with Christ's words. We gotta get past what he said about hell and heaven and few there are who travel that road, <laughs> things like this. Uh, <clears throat> so I'm talking about universality. And universality is this, it's something that was expected by God of humanity in the beginning, that each human being, each one of us, is to represent God to all of creation. So creation, no matter where it is, including us looking at each other, ought to be able to see God. <laughs> How many of you measure up to that one? Yeah. Well, you're among a great cloud of witnesses, I assure you, <laughs> starting up here, right? <clears throat> you know, it, we, we are to represent God to all of creation. And then secondly, we are rep to represent all of creation to God. So when we come to church, when we come together to do our liturgical and prayer work, all of creation is represented in each one of us. All of creation, everything out there. Think about this. We come together and we meet in that church and we sing these praises. And, and if we were the only parish in, in the world, if we were the only parish, if you take the whole collection of what constitutes the world and take that picture of us as the only parish out of that and then put it back in, look at the difference. One iota, one little spot here in Fort Worth makes the whole picture of the creation different. It changes it. It's the composition is not quite the same. And that's the way God works. And then he, he branches out and he exposes himself through those little pieces. So we represent all of creation and each one of us does. So, so when we wake up in the morning and we don't feel like being here and we think, we tell ourselves, well, there are other people there, they'll take care of it. That's the wrong attitude. Now I'm not saying, you know, sometimes we can't be here. We all know that we have to understand how to work around that. Uh, but the fact of the matter is we can't excuse ourselves on the basis that you will do it and therefore I don't have to be here. Uh, we all have our part, every one of our parts, individually and collectively, are, are important. So we represent all of creation. All of creation waits for the revelation of the sons of God. That's us. The third one, the true human is one who stands between two opposites. Remember, antinomy is the, is the essence of understanding orthodox thinking. Two seeming opposites held in tension, God and us. God and humanity. Wow, what a seeming opposite. Marriage is a man and a woman. You can't get any more different than that. Uh, so, and wives will let us know rather quickly. Uh, so, you can't get any more different than that. But that's antinomy is the essence of the faith. And humanity and God are the essence of the faith. And a true human being is one who stands between God and creation, the antinomy of God and creation, of the immaterial and the material. A human being stands in the middle, holding them together. We are the glue, if you will, 
that holds that antinomy together. All of us, a true human does, does this. He, a true human being or in universality intercedes for all the world. Remember Abraham, when he heard that Sodom and Gomorrah were gonna be destroyed, he interceded for Sodom and Gomorrah. That we intercede, we pray for all the world. That's our work, it's important that we do that. We can't excuse ourselves from doing it. It's really important. And we can't say, well, I know that all of you will do it, and therefore I don't have to worry so much about whether I don't do it today because I'd rather watch football games or watch the golfers out on the golf course or, you know, piddle, piddle around my backyard doing little things that I like to do. Uh, it's important. pray while you watch football games? Oh, <laughs> of course. I pray for my team to win. <laughs> I'm a New York Jets fan, which means I pray a lot. <laughs> So, we, in universality, we intercede. We will always be interceding. And, and you need to understand, there's no break from it. You know, I'm getting so tired of interceding. Just when you, you clear off your prayer list, somebody calls you and they add five people to it, you know? It just, there's always some need, you know? I'm just getting a routine going, and now you have Ukraine and Russia, and I just, oh, just gotta pray for that. Um, there's, there's always something. We will always be doing this because that is a part of our place and that's what universality is. All of creation waits for us to do this. One who's universal unites through his prayers and his ritual actions. There really, prayer is twofold. It's individual and it's corporate. We ought to do both of them. It's an anti antinomy of sorts. We have to do both kinds. One who's, who is universal will strive to be holy. Remember, sin means to miss the target, to fall short of the mark. We think of sin as, we've been trained in America to think of sin as, I did something wrong and God is really hacked off. And therefore he needs to have, in order to be gratified, he needs to know that somebody's getting his backside kicked in justification. And so I need Rooney to get this before I'll be happy. But God is not like that. God instead so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You see what sin does is it separates us from him and he wants to fill us as the, as crown, as the crown of creation, fill us with himself and, and fulfill all those things that I've just mentioned in creation, fulfill them in us. Uh, but he won't impose himself on us unless we let him by cooperating with him. And so sin is separation from that. And so one who is universal will work at, at correcting what his responsibility in this separation. You know, it, it's my fault of the, the prayer of the confidier, by my fault, my own fault, by my own most grievous fault. It's my fault, it's not yours, it's not my wife, it's not my kids, it's not my job, it's not the society in which we live, it's, it's myself, I'm, I'm the problem. So, so we, we strive to, to be holy, primarily by practicing repentance. <laughs> so that's why repentance is such a part of Lent. One repents in order to maintain purity, that is the condition. This is why, you know, we think of Lent as this nasty time when we have to do all these negative things like pray and give and repent and make confession. Oh, how negative it all is. No, no, no. These are things that are opening us to God. 
And so Lent is a time of rejuvenation. St. Benedict said that all of the Christian life is a mini, is, a, is Lent. All of the Christian life is Lent. Because the whole Christian life is like this. Lent is just a, a, a focus on it. So we're really going to focus on it, trying to do it. And, and, and when you get up, and by the way, when you get up and fail every day in your Lenten thing, remember, just you're in good company. So get up and keep going. Just get up again, keep going. That's a part of Lent too. One of the lessons we have to learn. And lastly, lastly, we manifest God to each other. Uh, you know, we're, we're looking at each other and going, I don't see God next to me. <laughs> so in any case, having said those things about universality, let's look at the three priesthoods. The priesthood of Christ, which is to all of creation through humanity. It's detailed in Hebrews, as I mentioned. It's God appearing to us. He's also man, so God coming down, and God on behalf of all and for all. Uh, but he's also man manifesting God, or creation standing before God. In the person of Christ, humanity and Godhead are united. And the universality is that he's the second Adam. The first Adam failed to live this out. The first Adam failed, and Christ is the second Adam. Because the first Adam failed, his universality was that all of creation, including ourselves, is negatively affected by that. The sin of Adam, we call it. And yet we have, as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. That's universality. And Christ changes that. And he's, so he is God manifesting himself to humanity, human, um, humanity manifesting itself to God. He intercedes, Hebrews 7 tells us. He makes unifying sacrifice. The sacrifice is of himself. Everything that happened in the fall and as a result of the fall that was, a, that was pl placed on the, on the backs, if you will, of hum fallen humanity prior to the incarnation was remedied in that God manifested himself in all of that, including death. <clears throat> And so he, there, therein lies the potential for everything to be transformed if we will just cooperate with what he did. And so he is the unifying sacrifice, his own life. You know, <coughs> some scholars will point out to us, and it really is amazing, Old Testament scholars for years were highly influenced by the errant notion, uh, the notions that came out of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, and scholars are starting to wake up to that now. Right, so I read a lot of history, and by the way, a lot of history is people are waking up to a lot of history stuff too. Uh, there's so much more out there and available. But anyway, scholars are, are, are beginning to see that looking at this picture more broadly, for example, this whole notion of creation that I've given you, is there, there's a realm out there, and even in, the, even in Protestant scholarship that's now seeing this, and some of the people as a result of it have come to orthodoxy. So, in any case, he makes unifying sacrifice. We look at when it, in the Old Testament it says that the blood is to be offered on the sacrifice. Uh, and, and it says the life is in the blood. The life is in the blood. But we look at it and we hear it and we think the life is that the life, somebody's been sacrificed. Somebody has been whacked. If it was an animal or whatever. Somebody's been whacked for this. And that's what the blood means. And so we can claim the blood in order to be saved. But really, the life is in the blood. 
And so a life is offered, the life of the animal is offered in place of the lost life of the human who makes the sacrifice in the incarnate, in this death of Christ. The life of God incarnate is offered on behalf. And so when we do the Mass, we make that present. Christ said, do this in remembrance of me. He didn't say, do this remembering what I did. The Greek word is anamnesis and means to make present something which happened in another moment in time. So it is transcending time or chronological time. And so Christ's sacrifice is unifying. And what do we do in the mass? We, we do our part and God appears in the elements and makes himself manifest. Behold the Lamb of God. And he's present in the, in the blood of Christ, which is present Really, not symbolically, metaphorically, yes, those two. Really. And he gives his life to us. He makes it present on the table. Gives his life to us. <laughs> so we waltz in, you know, we think, oh, I'm just so tired this morning, I don't feel like this. Well, what a privilege that we get to do this. You, you and I, unworthy people. We've failed to exercise our universality, and yet he gives us this gift. What a treasure. And therefore, he is holy. That is, without the imperfections that separate God. Yet he is God, so he can't separate himself. That's, what, that's why, you know, when you talk about going down into death, God cannot be separated from himself. So, so nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Hades, where is your sting? God has just gone there. And then if we have the priesthood of the people, all of us. Now, when I'm talking about the priest of the clergy, too, we, the clergy have one drawback, and that is everything that's expected of you is expected of us and the responsibilities of the clergy. I think that's why the writer to the Hebrews could say something to the effect of don't burden your clergy, for they are men who have to give account. Um, so keep, keep that in mind. I'm not trying to let him off the hook on anything. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, he would like that. So would I, yeah. The, the thought of, you know, I, I, I remember many years ago before I became Orthodox and, and people would say, oh, you know, I just want to be a priest because that's the only way you can really be a Christian. Well, number one, that's nonsense. And number two, you don't want that. Because we, we, scriptures and the faith make it clear that we will, we will be judged more severely than anybody. That's the way it goes. And so one who wants to be a priest needs to look at that very carefully. You don't want it. And number two, you have everything available for you to do exactly what we do. And your part in this is so critical. So you have the clergy of the people to manifest God to creation as we've already seen to intercede for all of creation in the prayers on the altar, which come really the, the prayers for all the, the whole state of Christ's church, that prayers and, how was it worded? I didn't write that. Intercessions and prayers be lifted for, be offered for all people. That's what it says in 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 3. So we do our intercessory work. We intercede for all of creation. Uh, to make unifying sacrifice, the do this, we do this. This is our sacrifice. We do this. We come together and do this. 
that's a part of our priesthood. So our priesthood is to intercede, and we can do that here, we can do that at home, we should do both, but we also have to make the unifying sacrifice. So we come together to do that. Do you know that in the rubrics, the priest is instructed, the rubrics are the instructions that tell us how to do the mass, to do it the way the church wants us to do instead of the way we want to do it. And, and one of the things that it says is that a priest is never to say mass without at least one lay person present. Now, it can be an acolyte, because an acolyte is a lay person, but it has to be one person. So that means that it's the, the work of you and us, you and me. It's our work together to make it valid. You can't do it without us, and we can't do it without you. So that's a part of the, uh, to make the sacrifice. To pursue holiness, because we don't want our work to be inhibited by our own sins. And we come here with all our baggage. You know, I, I, I've, my, my big struggle right now is, this may seem petty, but I can't quiet my mind. You know, and I come here, I think all this beauty of this place and what's going on here. And my mind is bouncing off the walls and I'm out here and out there. And if you say something to me and I have a faraway look, it's not because I'm not listening. I'm just, you know, uh, just, you know, maybe you understand. I don't know. Um, so it's, as Jed Clampett said, pitiful, pitiful. <laughs> he should have been saying it, you know. <laughs> Uh, in any case, to pursue, <clears throat> to pursue holiness. And then lastly, the clergy, to manifest God. That's our place to you, but also to the world. So, we, you know, we don't get off the hook when we go out, out of here and we go out to the store or restaurant. We still have to manifest God, especially if we, we're, we're in collars, you know. I remember when I was a young Anglican priest, the I was short, it had only been ordained about a year or two, and I was driving home from church one Sunday, uh, and some guy cut me off, uh, you know, and I'm a very impatient, uh, intolerant driver as it is, and so that's the Irish in me, I can blame my genetics, you know. So in any case, I, I didn't give him the hand gesture, but I raised a clenched fist, you know, and I just, oh, and, and I had my collar on. I'm suddenly aware of the collar. You know? I thought, that isn't going to work too well anymore. I'm giving, make, I'm giving Christ a bad name. Uh, so we have to manifest God. Uh, and we don't do that falsely. You know, just because I don't do those things, it, it just if we pursue the truth of the faith, it will, it will happen on its own. That's why so many times people can say, somebody will, you'll see somebody you know and you think that person exudes the presence of Christ. And you mention it to them and they go, huh? Yeah. What are you talking about? Because they don't see themselves that way. Uh, and that's one of the aspects of understanding this is we don't, if we think we've made it, well, then we're like the Pharisee in the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. Well, you are. <laughs> Welcome to the club. But it gets better if we understand that, which is what we want to do in Lent. And then we make the unifying sacrifice. So we have to say the Mass. And that's why in the church, the Mass is so important. We do the offices, 
uh, and they're important too, but the mass is the central action. It's kind of nice in a way because uh, we don't have to come up with some kind of worship service or have a worship committee to figure out what we do this week. We do the same thing over and over and over again. Can you top it? No. And you know what happens in churches where they don't do this and they have to come up with something? They get tired of it. After a while, it gets boring and the people go somewhere else. In one city I was in, which should remain nameless uh, because I'm out there online. Uh, uh, in any case, uh, I have to remember that when I say things. Uh, uh, there was what we used to call the church of what's happening now. Somebody came up with some kind of a program that attracted everybody in the city. And for two years, this, this church, whatever, whichever one it was, was the central place, the place to be for Christians in this city. Well, then people would get used to it and they'd get bored and they'd quit or they'd find some other church across town that had something new. And so they'd flock over there. And that church would be the place of what's happening now for two years until they got tired of that. So they moved around. They never did discover orthodoxy, which is probably good. Because we didn't have anything to give them, do we? See? It's not entertaining. And yet, those of you who are here are here because you saw something else. Anyway. So the priest must make unifying sacrifice and pursue holiness. We have to do what we're telling you we all have to do. We have to lead the way. We are like what they used to call field officers in the Civil War. You know, I realize Civil War history too. Uh, colonels and down among the officers uh, were field officers. They had to go out into battle with their troops. You know, higher than that, they stayed in the back and gave orders directed tactics, but lower than that, colonels and the like, and majors and captains were in front of the troops. They went into battle. They led the way. In World War I, among, in the English Army, the, the field officers were the first ones over the top. The, the lifespan, the average lifespan of a field officer in the British Army in the First World War was three weeks. So they knew what was going to happen. And no one, there was no allowance for, well, I don't want to die today and I don't want to go out there. You get out there and you do your duty. And a British field officer in the First World War had no weapons. He usually carried a walking stick or a, or a riding whip or something like that. <laughs> he didn't carry any weapons with him. So he was, and, and some of the line officers in Civil War carried just sword, which they could hardly use. Uh, he never get across the battlefield. I was just finishing up reading uh, part of a biography of Robert E. Lee, uh, not because I'm enamored of Robert E. Lee, but just because of their, their other reasons for reading this, but he was constantly having to replace field officers in the Confederate Army because they were getting killed all the time because so many people died. So we're sort of, we're sort of like field officers that we have to get out in front and you are like field officers. You have to get out in front too of the whole world it's what's expected of us. Now, you see how it's, it's, it's all the same thing. We're all expected to do the same things at various levels. Now, I, I mentioned this the last time. This is a big order and I mentioned this, and I'm, I'm only skimming on this. I'm giving you a little bit, just let this soak, just let it germinate and 
you know, let it, there's more coming. We'll give you more, little at a time. But know that when we come here, we have work to do. You have work to do, we have work to do. Uh, and, and we need to know what that work is because that's a part of our universality. I mentioned to you in a previous lesson that in the ancient Middle East, it was not uncommon to use the last letter of the Semitic alphabets, and Semitic alphabets are all pretty much the same. Uh, pretty much, they're, they're like 22 letters, uh, and they usually they have the same, they represent the same sounds. If you learn one of them, you can generally learn the others. Uh, and the last one was written in its earliest form like a T. Uh, some case it is the T sound, but it's not, and maybe our T came from it, I don't know. But in any case, it was not uncommon among the pagan Semites to, to mark themselves as belonging to their deities with the mark of the T, the last letter of the alphabet on their forehead. So that meant I represent the God, whoever that is. Well, in Judaism, the high priest went into the temple on the day of atonement. And when he went into the temple, he went into the, the Holy of Holies. He represented all of Judaism, all of the people of Israel, even all of creation entering into the presence of God. And when he came out, he came out with the name of God. He had a mitre on with the name of God on his forehead. So when he came out, he represented God to all of creation. Well, some scholars have suggested that the earliest form of the sign of the cross in Christianity was this. Now, maybe it's just coincidental, but that looks to me like marking oneself for the, for the God. And when you think in terms of a high priest, and we're going to look at that next time, uh, and a priesthood then really could be saying that we're being marked by God. It wasn't until about the end of the third, early fourth century, the church started making the full side of the cross. It always did this. So when we, we read the gospel and we make the three, see, we're doing it right there with our thumbs. Make the words of Christ be in my thoughts, on my lips and in my heart so that we will be transformed. So we make the sign of the cross because we are Christ's priests forever. All of us. I go back to that prayer that I read in the beginning. And again, I changed the wording. So if you know that prayer, you, you'll recognize that. Almighty God, receive us into the congregation of Christ's flock. And do thou sign us with the sign of the cross and token that hereafter we shall not be ashamed to confess the faith of Christ crucified, manfully to fight under his banner against sin, the world, and the devil, and to continue Christ's faithful soldiers and servants unto our lives' ends. That's the vocation of all of us, priests of creation. Next time we'll look at the temple priesthood and what it tells us.